Hey, Risto here with George Mason University. Uh, we are here with Carla Luguetti uh, from Victoria University in Melbourne, Australia. Um, we're discussing her paper that was just published in Physical Education and Sport Pedagogy uh, titled Towards a Pedagogy of Love, Exploring Pre-Service Teachers and Youth's Experiences of an Activist Sport Pedagogical Model. And I'll, I'll be honest, when I was reading this paper, I think there's more highlights than white space in the paper because I'm reading this and everything is just like clicking with me. So I'm really happy to have Dr. Luguetti on. Uh, thank you for joining us. And uh, how's, how are things in uh, Melbourne? Hello, Risto. Uh, yeah, it's Melbourne it has a lovely weather now. Uh, it's summertime here. And I want to say that it's such a pleasure to me to be here with you. I mentioned to you in ISAP, New York, I am a big fan of this podcast. I think it is an amazing way to disseminate research. And of course, he helped in cultivating our international community. So, Risto, congrats for this initiative. I think it is, is awesome. Uh, I you. also want to acknowledge my co-authors in this paper, uh, David Kirk and Kim Oliver, they both co-supervised my PhD in 2010-2014. So it's more than a pleasure to invite them, was a pleasure to invite them as critical friend, friends to this new challenge. So, yeah, I want to acknowledge them as well. And that's, uh, those are two very critical friends. Very cool people to have <laughs> on and very... And you can see by the article, very rigorously um, prepared as well. So um, let's get into the article. You, you mentioned in here that advocacy for an ethic of care in socially critical pedagogy and physical education has grown over the years. And that in, in this article, you're trying to explore the people's experiences of living with this kind of pedagogy. Can you kind of walk us through the literature and your experiences within this area to highlight how that ethic of care has grown in PE? Yes, sure, Risto. Yeah, and uh, first of all, I want to say that uh, I didn't start my line of research by talking or studying about love. Uh, love pretty much emerged when I engaged myself in, in critical pedagogy. So in doing participatory action research, I've always been open to transform myself in some sense. I think developing emotional connections based on trust and friendship with teachers, in, in that case with preservist teachers and the young people. So love for me was something that emerged and something that I'm interested to know more. And talking about the, the literature, I think Don Hallison and Kat Ennis, and I mentioned both in this paper, they were the pioneer scholars to, to talk about uh, pedagogies of affect and emotions and care. And of course, they inspired my work and they inspired this paper as well. If you think about uh, our early work from Don Hallison, Beyond Balls and Bots, it's one of my favorite books. Uh, he talks about this humanistic approach based on his practical experience as PE teacher working with K-12 
kids from socially vulnerable backgrounds. So Hellison will talk about the gym as a that should be a comfortable space, uh, a safe space where we as teachers, we should interact with students, caring about and sharing uh, who like we are with our students and also encourage them to, to do the same. And if you think about Kat Annie's uh, work, uh, she pretty much extends the framework of sport education to focus on conflict negotiation, care, and concern. So for her, students should learn about ways of analyzing conflicts and improve communications and manage anger. Uh, I think in different names, Risto, pedagogies of effect, care, love, we have seen a growing PE in studies in the area, and I think that is that is awesome. Yeah. Uh, I also want to mention that I see the difference between care and love. Uh, for me, care is a dimension of love. So I see love is as the big umbrella. Love for me is a combination of care, commitment, trust responsibility and respect. So I see care as a dimension of love, and that's why in this paper I am arguing uh, that we should think about pedagogy of love. Yeah, and I know that you, you pulled in the fact that Nell Nodding's work, 1984, that was a lot of what PE, when we talk about this pedagogy of affect, we, we pull from that work as well. And the two scholars you talked about, Ennis and Hellison, you know, both of them worked with what you, you describe as socially vulnerable youth as well. So I'm, I'm excited to get into that. But before we get into that, so do you think that there are any other like kind of key gaps in the literature that are preventing further growth in this area? Oh, yes, yes, Risto, I do. Uh, I'm always thinking how complicated is talk and also research love. I am reading Bell Hook's book uh, called All About Love, and I love all uh, her work anyways, but she's uh, describing how complicated it is first understanding love. She talks about how we daily receiving messages that tell us that uh, love is about mystery, love is about fantasy, like something we cannot know or research. If you think about the expression to fall in love, I think pretty much reflect it. So it's a mix of fear, fascination, confusion. Uh, it's kind of it's so difficult to us to choose love that's better to fall in love. So then you are not responsible for you know, your actions. Uh, so... Uh, for bell hooks, love is is an action, and we choose love. Another challenge for her it is the value of love in the world that we live. So we we all live in this world that seems that money, you know, materialism is mm -hmm. more matter more than freedom, love, and justice. So people. A lot of time we search for satisfaction, like immediately, and love is something that is not immediately. You have to invest time and commitment 
to love. So research love resto takes time. And that's, I think, also um, another, you know, gap that preventing further growth in this area. Yeah, and I know, and when I know we talk you spend about a lot of love, time in that, in that community as well. So I know we're, we'll get into that, but keep, keep going. Yeah, so it was a two-year participatory action research. And, and thinking about in education and PE, I think uh, defining love, it's uh, important also we critique some of the dom dominant forms of love. Uh, I think we have to challenge this idea that love is equal sacrifice and vocation. So based on, based on this Catholic notion, uh, love always requires sacrifice and is also connected with this idea calling for God. So you were born to love. I think we should challenge and critique these forms of love. Another form of love in education that we should critique, it is, I think we have to recognize the danger of considering what could be an alienate and a romantic love. For example, a good teacher is the one that offers the Christian pastorate caring. So I love you in a way that I can convince you to do whatever I want as a teacher. That, that's a kind of colonized love that could ties, controls and masks the requirement for social justice and equity. So domination is not love, Risto, and Paulo Freire will mention that. In this paper, I specifically draw on Paulo Freire's concept of love. So Freire believes in a decolonizing love is aligned with justice and freedom. For Paulo, it's a love that is based on dialogue, solidarity, hope, and imagination. Paulo Freire will call, uh, call as an armed love. So it is a radical love. And I think that kind of differentiation to us to understand what, what is this love we are talking about. Right. And it's interesting, like, I, I read the paper, and now that I hear you talking about the paper, I, I get it more, which is, I guess, the good thing about this podcast is having the author actually explain that paper in, in more of a conversational fashion. So uh, thank you for that. It, I'm sitting here and things are clicking in my brain. So anyway, uh, when you look at this, there are a lot of scholars from a ton of different disciplines that have defined this ethic of care in a variety of ways, right? So some scholars view the ethic of care as preparing young people to challenge racism, sexism, class exploitation, linguicism in their own communities. And now while we can of course aspire to, as P educators, to develop pre-service teachers of all ethnicities to engage in this meaningful but yet sometimes difficult conversation with our students to confront these critical topics. The question I have is, do you think that the PE field needs to work to expand the diversity within PE candidates? Yes, Risto, of course, of course, I think, yes. I think PE, you know, the PE field needs to work to expand diversity and in different levels, Risto. I think in addition to have more diversity, 
in our PID candidates, I believe we should have more diversity thinking about teacher educators in PID programs as well. Thinking about our PID programs, how many lectures, senior lectures and professors represent the others? I feel I represent the others, but how many of those we have in our PE programs? Mm -hmm. I think if love is to challenge the social injustice in our communities, we should fight, we should struggle for more representations in terms of diversity. I think we should have more diverse PE students and diverse teachers, educators in our programs. I, I would 100% agree with that. So tell me a little bit about the methods in this study and your rationale for selecting these methods. And just like an overview, I know this um, project took place in Brazil. So can you elaborate a little bit about that? Yes, Risto. So this study was a participatory action research project. And participatory action research is based on theory and practice of Latin American scholars, such as Paulo Freire, the theoretical framework behind this paper, and also feminist scholars as Michelle Fine. Uh, participatory action research believes that knowledge is produced in collaboration and is more powerful when produced collaboratively through action. So again, the importance of action. Uh, it's aimed not just to empower us as researchers, but participants as co-researchers. Uh, so it's helping us to understand uh, our relationship with the world. In traditional research, we as researchers, we are the experts and we just enter marginalized communities to collect data. And of course, the oppressed group in that sense will be just the object of the research. And participatory action research challenged this traditional conception. So the participants, they became our co-researchers. Uh, and what I, I love in this kind of study, it is we are not just listening their voices, but we also helping them to, we are helping them to uh, respond in some sense, to plan some kind of action in order to negotiate the barriers they face. And in that study, I was uh, co-creating, co uh, in, in my study, we co-created a sport program with youth and preservative teachers, as you mentioned before, from socially vulnerable areas. Uh, and was a two-year study in total, but in that study we focus on three academic, the first three academic semesters. Uh, the young people they were participating in sport classes twice a week for one hour, and I had ten preservers teachers with me working with these kids, and we had always have weekly meetings with my preservative teachers to in order to reflect in terms of what could how could we improve our own practice right and so you had those pre-service teachers essentially went with you into communities and you served uh, approximately 90 uh, 90 students who 
Some of them lived in low-income communities. Some of them lived in um, the favelas that you describe. Um, that what's interesting is if you know if you haven't been to Brazil, the way you describe it as this you know this omnipresent and highly visible favela, right? So it's side by side with new luxury high-rise structures. So poverty and privilege live side by side, and. So those are the communities that you worked with and you, you, you were the, the teacher educator. You had 10 pre-service teachers working with you and then those 10 pre-service teachers were working with youth to co-create this activist approach. Is that a good description? Yeah, that's perfect, Risto. Better than my description. Uh, and uh, I think it's it's also important to highlight that in the first semester, I was leading the activities and the preservist teachers, they were observing me. And in the second and third semester, they were responsible for leading the activities and I was observing them. And we always had weekly meetings to discuss our pedagogies, our own practice. That's great. And and I know throughout this 18 months, you had a ton of different viewpoints and ton of different data sources as well. So for those of you that are interested in more of the uh, research approach, I do highly suggest going in and picking up this paper because it does show what a really um, great project that's prolonged over time and really working with youth to understand what really really happens and um it, it's a good example so but let's get into the results of the paper um, you have three features of pedagogy of love in your findings so the first one is willingness to repeatedly challenge inequities number two valuing solidarity and then the third one is fostering hope and imagination and i loved reading these stories and the quotes from the teachers and the students in this section. So can you talk to us about these three features um, that you found and how they relate back to the purpose of the study? Yes, sure, Risto. And I, I, I would love also to invite people to read the results section. I think I will try to explain, but it's not as, uh, I think reading kids' voices and perceived mm -hmm. teachers' voices in the data, it's much, much more powerful than what I will try to explain now, but pretty much the purpose of this paper is to understand how pedagogy of love emerged. And as you said, uh, the first feature was how we together, uh, uh, we were like willingness to repeatedly challenge inequities. So for example, the implementation of this approach helped us to see gender inequity. And, but we, and we, I, I mean, my preservist teachers, the youth and myself, we need to be committed to keep challenging inequities over and over and over. So I think we had to have patience and commitment to name, critique and negotiate. And I use the example of how gender emerge in our context. So in the beginning, my preservist teachers, uh, they were reproducing inequities. I remember one of the quotes my preservist teacher said, oh, have, do you have butter in your hands? He was talking with one of the kids. 
and so that that simple highlights how they were reproducing inequities when they were playing with the kids in the first semester. So they had to learn, and I also uh, I had to learn how to negotiate that. The second feature was uh, that emerged was the development of solidarity. And that happens because we start to cultivating this learning community between all participants. So what's happening is the preservative teachers and I, we understood that share the youth and and we start sharing the youth's struggles in trying to, you know, overcome oppression. Uh, I think my preservative teachers they start to realize that they were also from low socioeconomic areas, so they start to empathize kind of seeing themselves in the kids so as soon as we start to understand the youth's lives in situations and their emotional needs we start to em empathize with them so solidarity is not about charity you know give what people mm -hmm. need but it's about sharing the struggle with them and i think we learned this through this project the importance of recognizing, you know, the challenge, this order it's facing. And because we, are, we all were from socially vulnerable areas, I think that recognition happens uh, easily than, than if we were from different backgrounds, for yeah. sure. And the final feature that emerged was the desire for to foster participants' hope and imagination. One of the boys, he said, we should push the houses back to have more space to play. So this possibility to imagine alternatives. And for sure, it emerged first in youth's conversation, conversations. I think the kids could metaphorically imagine alternatives that some of us, as adults, we could not see. Yeah, and and that's a really brief summary of the results, which is, you know, again, like you said, I think it's really great to go in and read the results section because there are so many great quotes that you pull out from the students about, you know, in your first theme, you talk about how the role of soccer is a masculine, male-dominated sport in Brazil. It's a national sport and how you know, your pre-service teachers in the beginning may have been reinforcing these uh, gender roles. And, you know, you talk about how, you know, even in Kim Oliver's earlier work 10 years ago about the boys won't let us play. It's are things that are still coming out in, in, these, in these papers. And I think the most powerful thing in that results section was that you showed how much more the kids could see how much more the youth could imagine of coming up with alternatives of how to make their situation better, whereas the pre-service teachers didn't always um, always see it the same way, or they didn't have that, you know, they haven't been told no so many times. They haven't been shown what the parameters are, and I think that's the key to having this type of approach is listening to students. Sometimes they have some of the better ideas, so... 
but let's um let's move this into a different format so what advice do you have for any PE teacher listening out there who's thinking, wow, I want to follow this pedagogy of love framework in my PE courses, but maybe they have no idea where to start. What are some of the kind of steps that teachers can take to learn more about their students' cultures in an appropriate and respectful manner? Yes, that that's a good, really good question, Risto. I was thinking a lot about the possible answers. I, I don't think I have steps. Maybe I will suggest not in order, but some advices. The first one, it is reflection. Mm -hmm. I think it is important to teachers always reflect about their own practice. So my suggestion would be start to write a reflective diary, write about not, not just about what you observe, but also about your feelings and emotions. Try to understand why you are feeling what you are feeling. I think that's my first advice. My second one, as you mentioned, is listen to your students' voice. Ask them, so what can I do to improve my practice, to be more inclusive? They have the knowledge. So show them also your vulnerabilities. Uh, and don't be afraid of doing that. I think if you ask them, they they would have some of the answers for how you can improve your pedagogy. Right. My third advice, it is find a critical friend. And a critical friend that would challenge your pedagogy. A friend that would say to you, Carla, I think this love is kind of danger. Someone that honestly can challenge your pedagogy. I think it will help you a lot to negotiate power relation in your classroom. Power relations will be always there. So I think a critical friend can help you to negotiate. Um, my last one, it is understanding and embody this idea of being a lifelong learner. So Paulo Freire talks about we are unfinished, unfinished beings. So we are always making mistakes as teachers. So in, in this process of being and becoming a better teacher, being comfortable in this space that's uncomfortable because you are always learning, you are always reflecting and learning from your mistakes. That, that would be my advice. So where do you know of any professional development uh, that currently exists, maybe online materials or trainings or anything for teachers who want to learn more about ways to address these heavy topics such as racism, sexism, classism, like in more of a manner that students can understand and relate to? And maybe more specifically to communities that lack that diversity. Yeah, what I would argue, Risto, it is all kinds of professional development in, in, on these topics should also be in practice. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking about creating units or classes that, you know, we would have spaces where our student teachers would understand their inequities and their own privileges. And I was remember, you know, my postdoc with Kim Oliver, 
and seeing her methods class in US. And to be honest, uh, I decided to use the same strategy here in Australia. So that could be an example. Uh, we have a unit here called Adolescent Health. And in session three, we interview a group of kids in a school close to my uni about what they like, dislike, the, their perceptions about school, family, their opinion about health, physical activity, and of course, barriers they face to be healthy and to play sports or in terms of physical activity. And given what we learn from the session three that my preservers teachers they with me, we go to a school, we study in-depth topics for six sessions that emerge from the kids' voice. And what we do is after six sessions studying the topics, we come back on session 11 to respond to the kids that we interviewed. So we prepare a health expo with interactive information stands. In this unit, what I think it is my PIT students, they learn to value young people's voice. So they kind of understand in the end that kids could be resources of knowledge. And that's, I think it is a strategy we can kind of helping them to understand uh, social justice. But as I said to you, I think it has to be in practice. That is really interesting because I'm just sitting here going, why did I never think about doing it like that? And I think my secondary methods course, you know, in the fall is going to go out to our local school and do that same practice. So uh, you can tell Kim Oliver that I'm stealing her idea as well, because that that seems like <laughs> such a practical way for I mean, how many times do we as Pete educators really think like, Okay, let's ask the teach our pre-service teachers to ask the students about like they just go in thinking that high school students are X Y Z. They take in their stereotypes of who they are instead of sitting down and actually talking to them. That is that's a really great idea. All right, so the pre-service teachers in your study um, they seem to have a transformative experience where they learn to transition out of the role of the expert and into this role of a learner alongside the students. So as you say in the article, one of the quotes was, they learn to value relationships and respect young people's experiences over being an authoritarian teacher. So looking at PEAT, so physical education, teacher education here, so how can PEAT programs foster this transfor transformation and self-reflection among their undergraduate students before their student teaching experience? Yes, Risto, I think as I mentioned before, again, I think has to be in action, in practice. So in this process of action, reflection and action, um, I think we should, again, I think we have to have PIT programs that value units where the students could work with young people and reflect their practice. In, in, in this study we are talking about, I was for the first six months, as I mentioned to you, just leading the activities 
and my preservist teachers were observing me. We were in practice, but I have to be honest, observing me, me didn't help my preservist teachers learning. So I remember talking with Kim, you know, in, uh, as my critical friend and say, Kim, seems like they were not, they, they were not here with me. So I'm just trying to highlight how sometimes, uh, and I, I, pretty, I pretty much believe a lot of times they have to experience in order to learn. And I think we should think about how can we include more action in reflection, participatory action research, self-study as a way to help our preservist teachers to connect with young people's voice and by connecting with young people's voice they will learn and they will transform themselves yeah so you mentioned that this study worked with youth and pre-service teachers from socially vulnerable communities but that you believe that the idea of the pedagogy of love could be translated into other contexts can you share an example of another context you feel the pedagogy of love should or could be translated into? Yes, I pretty much believe it could be translate to any any other space where we we want to name, critique, and transform various people's face. Uh, and that's it's pretty much my next paper, Risto. I, I, I'm writing about the challenge I faced in delivering this pedagogy here in Australia, in my adolescent health unit I was, I was talking before, and in a new liberal context. Mm -hmm. So I faced a lot of challenges. Uh, one of those was my struggle to share power with my students. And in this self-study I'm writing, I better describe how I'm still facing this challenge. And my second challenge was to understand the complexities of teaching in a new liberal context and how an activist approach can be a powerful tool if you wanna uh, working in a new liberal context. So uh, I am writing and hopefully I can share with you in the future how this pedagogy of love would work in a context such as Australia, in specifically in a neoliberal context. Yeah, and we'd be happy to have you on. I think it's so interesting how the activist approach is enacted in different areas. And, you know, we did something uh, something similar with the activist approach in Southern California that we're just putting some papers out on and I just I find this it's it's way more difficult right going through and doing it this way but it's so much more meaningful and you connect with students on and even pre-service teachers on a different level so um, I just want to thank you for your time I think you know in the very beginning I, I, I clicked way more with the article when we were talking about it and throughout the middle of that that idea of going in and, you know, second guessing, how do I think my pre-service teachers perceive high school students and why or how it could be so transformative to have them go in and interview those students and then make those lesson plans based on what they, you know, learn about them instead of going in blind and, 
you know, so you're, you're making me rethink what I'm doing. So, um, really appreciate your time, um, for, for the listeners that you want to read the full article, I'll link to it here. Um, you can also find, um, Dr. Luguetti on Twitter at Carla Luguetti, L-U-G-U-E-T-T-I. Um, any, uh, other final comments from you, Carla, or questions? No, I just want to say thank you so much, Risto, and also mention how we as teacher educators, we should always be open to transform ourselves. I think through this project, I learn a lot. And I think my pre-service teachers, they help to, they taught me a lot. They transform me and they made me a better person. Yeah, and, and your... I, I wish I would have recorded your keynote at ICEP because it was it was really a great look into uh, into the work that you do. And now in in hindsight, I wish I would have just like shoved a recorder underneath your microphone. But we're we're so happy to have you on here. Um, we'll link to the notes uh, with your Twitter handle and your. Um, your website at, uh, at the university and um, also thank you to uh, Kevin Richards and Aaron Santeo for, for the support on the podcast and I was told that if you are still listening that you should rate us on Apple Podcasts because we have some really good ratings there and we'd love to uh, share this more widely and um, if you like what you're listening to uh, share this with a, with a colleague so thanks Carla really appreciate it Thank you, Risto. It was a pleasure. Thank you.